Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I said to our executive producer, Rachel Orsman, a few days ago, get in our deli. And I think that needs some discussion. Bob Nardelli, uh, of, of course, with a lot of work across a number of sectors of the American landscape, and also with the perspective being removed from the song and dance for a number of years, gives him a very twisted view. Bob Nardelli's with Excel, Accelerate. Uh, I think I got that right. Yes. Thank you. And uh, But has a great, great view. What does it mean to you, Bob Nardelli? Forget about all that's going on with Russian intelligence and the such, and Mr. Bannon and the rest. What does it mean when our president says, make America great again? What's it mean to your Western Illinois? What's it mean to New Mexico? And what does it mean for Bloomberg 1200 Boston? Yeah. Well, Tom, good morning. It's great to be with you and Francine again. Um, so, what we're mostly excited about in the business community is what's transpiring in uh, in Washington. I mean, we have a hundred and eighty degree turn from where we were the last year, last eight years. Uh, we have a we have an administration and a president that is actively engaging with business. If you look at the parade of CEOs that have been with him in the Oval Office, encouraging investment encouraging growth, encouraging the CEOs to think about uh, the globality of their business, but certainly looking at local opportunities to invest. If you look at the string of committed investments that have been made in the past three to four weeks to really make America great again, if you listen to the conversations about corporate tax and rolling back some of the bureaucracy that has actually strangled a lot of businesses, particularly small businesses and startups. So I think we have strong encouragement, repatriation. There's a number of things, if you look at the Obamacare and, and some of the impacts it's had, not only on health care delivery, but the cost to many corporations and small businesses. So, Tom, in, in total, if you put all those things down, there's a lot of positives. Now, are there some distractions going on? Yes. Is the rate of change uh, disturbing to some people? But remember, we have to make up for eight years. So change will be the only constant, and it has right. to be aggressive, and it has to be bold, Tom. But when you look at the animal spirits, which you're talking about, and the CEOs being willing to spend more, uh, is there a concern among CEOs that actually the Trump administration is, I guess, being distracted by what we hear with General Flynn, with Russia, and so that they won't really be able to deliver in the time they've promised all this infrastructure spending, all this taxation repatriation? Well, there's no question this issue with General Flynn is a bump in the road, and it is creating distraction. And it's creating, you know, some uh, legitimacy on the part of, of uh, the other party 
to create this distraction. But I think, I think the administration and the president is going to be laser focused on his commitments and what he believes got him into the office. And I don't think he's going to back off right. on these things, Francine. I mean, this is somebody that knows how to process a number of different issues in parallel right. rather than sequential. Bob Nardelli, is it so critical that we need to jumpstart this with spending increases without attendant revenue increases? What do you do with the deficit to GDP to jumpstart nominal GDP, to jumpstart Make America Great Again? Do you sacrifice fiscal prudence to blow out the budget deficit back to 5 or 6% GDP? Well, I think there's a couple of things, Tom Wright. I think we will have to spend in advance of revenue. Uh, there's going to take, you know, major investments, uh, infrastructure within the corporations. If we talk about building factories, if we talk about, you know, a resurgence in R&D, which will create high-tech jobs, good-paying jobs. I think if you, if you think about the, the, the national debt and we talk about Yellen increasing the interest rate, we have to, we have to pause and say if this thing goes up to 4%, what are we going to have to be paying in interest on this $20 trillion? So I, I think that has to be talked about and put on the table as a reality. You know, I think rates will go up a couple of times this year based on the prospects of a, of a growing economy, on the prospects of a improved GDP. We've had eight years of low and slow growth, you know, one, one and a half percent. We've got to get to three, three and a half percent to, to really uh, – to realize the kinds of things we've committed, have been committed to about job creation and economic growth in this country, Tom. Bob, does a strong dollar actually hurt animal spirits? Well, the strong dollar, as always, Francine, there's, there's the goes-ins and the goes-outs. I think from a supply chain standpoint, the strong dollar for U.S.-based manufacturing is a good thing. Yeah. If you think about buying goods, you know, as part of our export plan, obviously that will be, that will be impacted to some degree. So, I think we have right. to balance the good and the bad with, with a strong dollar. Within the proposals you've seen, and for example, I, I, don't quote me on this, folks. We're going to go from six, seven, eight tax brackets down to three or whatever we're going to do within the tax game. How do you convince our listeners that it's not all going to go to Bob Nardelli? You know, well, big hitters like you? Aren't well, you? Trickle well, Nardelli it, economics? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things. For, for example... Tom, to that point, whether it's taxes or repatriation, we have to make sure that the dollars that come back are, are handled in a thoughtful way. And what, is, what do I mean by that? So, for example, let's say 25% goes into infrastructure, and now the latest discussion is that it will be treated somewhat like a, a treasury so that they will get principal and some incentive, some interest incentive for doing that. Maybe another 25% ought to go into a very measured account. You know, money is fungible, so we got to go through these, back through these corporations and make sure that the money that comes back, that let's say it's not taxed, is clearly identified as incremental over and above the current capital budgets that will go to create jobs. I think your point is spot on. The average citizen does not want to see a stock buyback program yeah. that helps the CEOs and the upper echelon line their pockets. So we have to be thoughtful about not letting that happen, Tom. Okay, if I go to Macomb, Illinois, Macomb, Illinois, where you were in school at Western Illinois, if I go to Jackson Street Pub, you know, like it's, it's like what it is. It's a pub. I mean, and then, I don't know, a martini's like $4 and a beer's a buck eighty. I get it. But within that America, how can they become reattached to Washington 
into the finance of New York. I mean, how is President Trump going to do that, given the distractions we've seen, particularly the last 24 hours? So he has to deal with the distractions. Uh, he can't just, uh, you know, try and sweep them under the rug because it's, going, it's front and center. The media, you know, congressional hearings, et cetera, probably will uh, take place on this issue. Set that aside. You know, this is a president that went out into the Midwest and went into those facilities and made some big, bold commitments yeah. about being thoughtful, creating jobs, education. You know, if you think about our H-1B, you know, the issue here, where a lot of the CEOs are clamoring for high-tech individuals, which I think is points to a, a failure in our educational system that we can't create that kind of talent here. The HB1s for low-tech jobs should be non-existent. We got enough people yeah. in our country that should yeah. be able to fill those jobs in a meaningful way right. and, and, and get, off, get off the benefit roll. We're here with Robert Nardelli. And, Bob, I want to have a serious discussion. This is an unfair question, but I'm going to start with it anyways. If you had a given $100 million 30 years ago, you knew how many jobs that would create. How many fewer jobs does a given $100 million in manufacturing investment create today? Oh, boy, I, I don't know the exact number. A third, a quarter? Probably. Probably a third uh, at most. Uh, maybe a quarter, Tom, to your point. Yeah. Uh, if you think about... Uh, not only labor rates, but the overhead benefits rates and everything else that goes with it. Uh, you know, the, the cost the cost to manufacture yeah. today has gone up significantly from when you and I were young young men working. And and I you know I think Bob about LBJ and I'm just picking on him of the era of the '60s of targeted investment tax credits to get guys like Nardelli or Jeff Immelt or whoever to do something. <laughs> Why? What is so hard about targeted job-creating tax credits? Why is that anathema? I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, it certainly worked for a lot of us. I think we were given opportunities that maybe don't exist today because of that, uh, Tom. But I, I would not trade, you know, you and I were talking uh, offline about the experience uh, that we had laying highways, uh, putting up steel, laying brick, right. and so forth. I mean, it really... I think it 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 created a lot of the culture in the in, in the overall mannerism yeah. in which we we think about business today. It, it was a valuable lesson that's missed today. I think, Tom. Yeah, um, we got to interrupt here, folks. Francine, please stay with us as you choose. But we've just had two tweets from the president that are news worthy. The one of 12 minutes ago: the Russian connection nonsense is merely an attempt to cover up the many mistakes made in Hillary Clinton's losing campaign. That's verbatim. And then just a minute ago, information is being illegally given to the failing New York Times and Washington Post by the intelligence community, parentheses, NSA and FBI, question mark, close parentheses, just like Russia. We bring those to you now. We'll have them more in our news cycle and within our conversations this morning. Francine, I'm sorry to interrupt with the uh, drama out of Washington. Yeah, the drama is important, Tom, because if we go back to Bob Nardelli, you have almost on a daily basis these kind of tweets. And it's unclear to me as a foreigner living very far from America what the end game is. Is he trying to talk about the institutions? Will the institutions need to keep a check on him even more? Will it end ugly? Yeah. Well, Francine, a couple of things. I think we have seen this president uh, – uh, be consistent and true to form with his tweets about the media. And uh, 
is I don't imagine this ongoing confrontation with the media will change uh, in spite of the, the, you know, the issues that are swirling around the administration today, point number one. I, I think, uh, you know, second of all, but Bob, this is not the media. This is the, he's going after the intelligence community. Well, that that's the second point uh, I wanted to make. Is again, he has been somewhat consistent and somewhat jauntist about NSA, the FBI, national security, and the leaks that are taking place there today. You know, I, I don't know. He has speculated that a number of people in key positions who are not enamored with this administration and who had been loyal to the prior administration could be trying to undermine what it is uh, they're trying to do. Uh, mm -hmm. And third, I think, you know, the White House still needs to get organized in a manner. They still are understaffed. They still don't have all of the cabinet positions filled, and yet they are, uh, you know, use Tom's example. I mean, they've got their foot on the gas to the floorboard going full speed ahead. And so I think as soon as they can get the rest of the organization uh, in place, the rest of the cabinets right. and, and a full staff, hopefully they'll be, be able to, to continue to provide good intelligence and good advice to this president. Bob, very quickly, does the GOP support Donald Trump if he continues tweeting things like this? Well, they may not be happy with it, but I don't think it's going to change in the short term, Francie. All right. What will change? What will make them change? Well, I, I think... Uh, you know, you still have some distractors uh, within the party. Uh, there's probably still some hard feelings among people in the party that were bruised during the campaign. Yeah, but Bob, come on. The, the money question here is are the Republicans going to begin to say to their guy, we're not going to do tax reform. We're not going to do Nardelli economics because of the zoo with Russia, et cetera, et cetera. Is that a real risk? Well, I think uh, that would be a real risk to the party and an even bigger risk to okay. what we need in this economy, Tom. Now, Bob, thank you so much. Bob Nardelli uh, with some real industrial experience. Love talking to him about particularly Western Illinois University. Francine Lacroix, she doesn't know where Western Illinois is. Tom Keene in New York. Wait, I don't either. This is Bloomberg. time to catch up with Stephen Whiting of Citigroup. Stephen, good morning. Good morning, Tom. Tell me about profitability in America. I get the idea we're having a melt-up. I get the idea revenue growth is like, okay. I get the idea expense control is religion, but what's it mean for earnings? Well, it means that the underlying pace of earnings before any corporate tax cuts or any acceleration in economic growth driven by stimulus is probably 6%. Uh, in a world in which Treasury bonds are 2.5%, uh, that is uh, proving attractive. You know, I think if anything has been a surprise you know, for us, you know, looking back one year ago, we were explaining that you know, there was a severe downward correction in energy-related profitability, dragging down you know, a bit of the industrial complex with it. Uh, but that was very far along. Uh, and you were likely to see a recovery. We never sort of viewed it as an earnings recession just because some headlines were slightly negative, but it was very, very concentrated. Yeah. Now we're getting the benefits of uh, the rebound, and I, and I hear a lot of people talking about it as if it's a surprise. So earnings um, will reach records this year before tax cuts. Where Steve. are we? Oh, go ahead, Francine. No, no. I'm sorry. 
Steve, what is the one thing that we're discounting? Or why are the markets not pricing impossible tariffs? And that actually impacts the earnings straight away. Uh, did you say trade wars? Did, was that the, the word you used? I'm sorry. Uh, I was talking about tariffs. Why are the markets focusing on a lot of earnings growth and higher expectations because of this reflationary uh, from Donald Trump? But why are they not pricing in possible trade wars? No, I think that this is um, a lower probability risk than the unified government uh, under Republicans uh, putting in place substantial fiscal uh, stimulus. But um, it is a risk nonetheless, uh, and it is not uh, something that is significantly focused on. Uh, You know, it is fair to say that there is a collection of positives and negatives, and markets have focused in on, uh, you know, the clearer, more probable positives. Uh, But um, just how we finance stimulus in the United States, for example, raises questions as to, you know, whether there will be any of those disruptions and whether or not that can actually feed back negatively on earnings. Stephen Whiting, as you do, you nail it with the headline now about those promises. When do the promises come true? When does all the, you know, even before the election, the, the, the reflation bump, when does it all start to happen? Well, you know, Speaker Paul Ryan spoke about 200 days, uh, and 200 days is, uh, requires a lot of patience to get substantial tax reform, which I think uh, is, you know, the larger part of uh, any growth acceleration uh, into place. Uh, we just heard uh, the president, though, uh, last week um, talk about providing some sort of an outline, an announcement, uh, just in a couple weeks of time, and that is reinvigorating. Yeah. Uh, you know, everyone's expectation that that alone uh, can keep us going. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, I don't mean to interrupt again, folks, but we've decided to keep uh, with a news flow out of Washington on the tweeting flow of the president when it is on target, which it is. We heard earlier with the president of the United States thanking Eli Lake of Bloomberg View. The NSA and FBI should not interfere in our politics and is it is a very serious situation for the United States. And now Mr. Trump says Crimea was large caps taken by Russia during the Obama administration. Was Obama too soft on Russia? Francine, again, I don't mean to interrupt, but it is coming fast and furious from a beleaguered White House. It is, Tom, and I, and I can't figure out. So we talked a lot about the friendship, the possible friendship between Russia and the U.S., and this seems to be a tweet that actually flies in the face of it, right? I mean, he's saying, first of all, Crimea was taken by Russia. This is not something that Vladimir Putin will like. And then right. he's questioning whether Obama is too, too soft on, on Russia. What do we actually, um, Steve, you know, getting back to, we're still trying to understand what this administration can and will deliver. What do we understand about how he will deal with foreign leaders? Well, we are in a different world. We're in a less predictable world on foreign policy. Um, You know, it goes on both the fiscal front, benign gridlock, uh, to something just far more active. Uh, It puts all sorts of policies in play, including monetary policy, and on the foreign policy front. Um, You know, our ability to predict a new administration is just uh, significantly reduced compared to, you know, the eight years we got used to. You know, I look, Steve, I I look, Steve, at the makeup here, and, and what you're so good at is moving down the income statement off of the greater economy. Do you just assume better GDP growth to underpin the top line of the income statement? Is it a given? I don't, I don't, I mean, I get the theme and I get the forecast of people like you, but I just don't know, how do we get there? Well, look, I think um, one thing helped, and it is, yes, fair to say, a shift between you know, sort of one sector to the other. Uh, and we mentioned that earlier. And when you had a 60% collapse 
in global capital investment in the petroleum sector, you know, you have repositioned uh, for some higher prices. Now, that all of that higher price and the effect it's going to have on consumer incomes uh, comes uh, before there's any tax stimulus. But there is a savings cushion, and these are familiar gasoline prices for all of us. So uh, I think that we will just have somewhat higher inflation. We certainly have stronger confidence. Uh, so holding it all intact with higher inflation and higher revenue is, is, is quite possible uh, before any of those troubles. I think um, the idea that the U.S. can accelerate its pace of economic growth in the face of large tax cuts um, is high probability. The question is, what does it do around the rest of the world? You know, will we have a disruptive rise in the U.S. dollar, more Fed tightening than the rest of the world uh, can handle, uh, possibly uh, shifting the tax burden to finance uh, U.S. stimulus uh, to international producers. This will have impacts on, uh, you know, domestic companies and their and their business models potentially. Now, those are the unknowns uh, about policy stimulus in the United States. But you know, stimulus that affects American companies uh, is highly likely one way or the other. Steve, this is exactly what I wanted to ask you. At what point does dollar strength actually hurt earnings? Well, it does uh, all along. I mean, it is you know, a uh, two-sided sword. I mean, we um, are seeing strong savings inflows into U.S. dollar assets. Uh, and, you know, the reason for that uh, is probably going to be this fiscal stimulus that will uh, mean federal saving and more uh, economic growth in the United States, which is good, but it's going to take uh, some of the strength away from, uh, you know, EPS abroad. Then you'll get tax repatriation. So very, very complex number of moving uh, parts here. But right. uh, the reasons for the rise in the dollar, again, are, you know, savings flow positives for the United States. Okay, I get that. But I, and I get the rate of change debate. I think all of our listeners understand this. If I look at trade-weighted broad dollar, it is a vector stronger. What gets in the way of just a grind to a stronger dollar that begins to impinge all sorts of good things that could happen? Well, look at it this way. Under a risk-off scenario uh, where suddenly we find that the dollar is a disruptive impact across the world, you know, we will see uh, the dollar stronger, mostly against EM currencies. If it is being driven by policy divergence in a better U.S. growth rate, then we will see the dollar higher against uh, DM currencies like the euro, where we're going to be easing for the entirety of this year and beyond. And, you know, the question becomes sort of, well, what is the scenario for a weaker dollar? Uh, and it's one where sort of U.S. growth falls short and we stay in this sort of trapped range of slow economic growth that we have been in for the last six years. And so I think that the tails, you know, the probability of, uh, you know, some sort of risk-off event because of some policy mistake, as well as a more robust recovery, both of those probabilities have risen compared yeah. to where we were a year ago. It's the central, you know, sort of the case of just slow, uh, benign kind of uh, growth, this secular stagnation right. that would have resulted in a weaker dollar, and that has been a, that's a reduced probability. Uh, Steve Whitey, thank you so much with Citigroup. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. 
When President Barack Obama came to office, he inherited a big financial crisis, and much of it centered on the banks. Early in his tenure, Mr. Obama appointed Daniel Tarullo to the Federal Reserve Board, and Dan became the point person for constructing an entire new set of regulatory structures designed to make sure we didn't repeat what happened in 2008. Late last week, Governor Tarullo announced that he'd be stepping down in just over a month, and he's here now to review where we are and where we need to go. Welcome, Governor Trulo. Great to have you here. Thanks. Good and to be back. And welcome also to our radio listeners. This is so important, Dan, that we're putting on radio as well as television all at the same time. So, so let's start with the big question. Uh, you came in. A lot of things were broken. I think almost everyone would agree with that. What remains broken after eight years in terms of the regulatory structure? Well, I don't know that there's anything so severely broken that we should be worried about any immediate consequences. But I do think that that two areas in which we've tried to concentrate over the last eight years still need attention. And the first of those is, of course, the very largest firms that have been characterized as too big to fail. There's been a lot of progress there, but there's more work needed. And secondly, the nature of the crisis in 2007 and 8 reminded us that the nature of funding in a financial system in which traditional lending and capital markets are so integrated is just as runnable as in the 1920s when bank deposits were not insured. It's a different form of funding now. It's repo, it's securities financing transactions. But the runnability of that funding combined with the big drop in a key asset price, housing, was what produced the crisis. And we need to be constantly on the lookout for vulnerabilities with runnable funding. Uh, and, and I think that's, by the way, an ongoing exercise. You're not going to come to a point where you say, okay, that's done, now we move on. So let's start with the first one you mentioned, right. which is too big to fail. Uh, we have Gary Cohn, just a week ago or so, when they had the executive order, came out and said, we have not really addressed the too big to fail. Uh, we have uh, Congressman Henserling, actually, we'll play a little thing of what he had to say, saying we've got a big problem with bailouts. Let's play that what's most important to the American people, and that is to get out of the bailout business. And unfortunately, Dodd-Frank didn't end bailouts. It enshrined them into law. That has to change. So are they right? And if so, what needs to be done in order to fix the too-big-to-fail problem? Well, I think they may be saying somewhat different things. Um, I do think there's been an awful lot of progress made in addressing the too-big-to-fail problem. The resiliency of our largest, most systemically important institutions is substantially greater than a decade ago. Capital levels are way up. Because of that runnability that I mentioned a moment ago, we now have both liquidity regulations in place and much better liquidity management systems by the largest institutions. We have made progress on a resolution regime that will make sure that no individual firm is too big to fail. It can be resolved in insolvency. I don't think we're there yet, and so that's one area where pr more progress is needed. One thing I will say, David, I think when someone comes and tells you we've solved the too-big-to-fail problem, that's when you should begin to get worried. <laughs> it's almost insoluble by definition. I think it, because the financial system adapts so readily and so um, expertly in a lot of ways to create new opportunities for making money, the financial regulatory system needs to be attentive to those changes and to evolve with it. And by the way, that's what didn't happen in the pre-crisis period. I, I do wonder, though, Governor um, <clears throat> Tarullo, if we're getting into a cycle where people are forgetting the financial crisis and, and exactly what you just mentioned. Yeah, so that's, a, that's an excellent point. And, you know, I, if, if we just go back 
to a decade or 12 years ago? What was, what was the state of the financial system, including some of our biggest firms then? One, with, even though capital markets and traditional lending had been integrated, when firms priced for risk, a lot of the instruments in which they traded, they didn't take into account the credit risk that was embedded in those instruments. Mortgage-backed securities are the best example. Two, they were not attuned to the possibility that across the system you could have a liquidity squeeze as everybody pulled back saying we're not sure about asset prices so for the moment we're just going to stay on the sidelines. Three, in many instances they did not even know what their own risk was. In 2009 when we ran that first set of stress tests on the fly as it were, we sent out requests for information and more firms than one would have expected were not able in anything like a reasonable period of time to aggregate risks to the same counterparties from across their big firm. Those are the things that produce the regulatory changes that we've put in place and those are the things which shouldn't be forgotten as a historical matter but as I said a moment ago the kind of adaptations in the financial system may mean that new risks are created along the way. How central to the regulatory structure at this point are those stress tests? I, I think that they are the single most important supervisory innovation not just since the crisis but really for the last 20-25 years. What do the stress tests do? Stress tests first try to look at a sizable portion of the U.S. financial system at the same time to see how a recession or a particular move in asset prices would affect all of the larger and just a little bit less than largest firms. Second, they're dynamic. We change the scenarios uh, from year to year precisely so that we test for different things because you don't know where the real stresses in the system are going to come from. Uh, and third, it is a way of allowing us not only to make sure that firms have enough capital and that they don't, as in 2007, continue putting out dividends when their capital is shrinking, but also it's an opportunity to make sure that their own risk management systems, quantitative and qualitative, are attuned to the idiosyncratic risks that their own firms may face. And there's just one other thing to add. Yes, the largest, most systemically important firms need the stress test, but there's a reason why we go further down, and that is you need the whole system able to intermediate credit even in a severe recession. So with very large regional banks, which individually are probably not too big to fail, we still want to make sure that as a group, those banks are resilient enough to continue providing credit to U.S. households and businesses. Governor Tarullo, I want to go back to what you said, you know, more work needs to be done in terms of too big to fail, yep. fail and you laid out some things. Are there banks, though, in our financial community right now that are too big to fail and should be, to some extent, broken up a little bit? Well, what we've been trying to do is to um, set the regulations at the point which we think is appropriate in order to take account of the additional risk to the financial system that any such firm creates and then to have the firms themselves decide the most efficient way to deal with those regulations whether to hold a lot more capital liquidity or as we've seen to get out of some businesses to reduce exposures in other businesses in a way we're trying to use a kind of pricing mechanism which at gets them to decide the best way to do it. 
I, I do think that we've got to continue to do that. You know, that, that's why I mentioned last fall that I thought we should integrate the surcharge, the surcharge for the largest banks into the stress testing regime. And it's also why we need to continue to work on the resolution regime, uh, because that importantly doesn't just say, gee, give us this big plan that will pull off the shelf in the event that you're failing. It forces the firms to change the way they operate day to day precisely so that if you get to that Friday afternoon, you're not facing a situation in which there's no liquidity to deal with the stress. Now, for those of you just joining us on television and radio, we are speaking with Federal Reserve Governor Daniel Tarullo. And Dan, I asked you about what yet, yet needs to be done. Are there any places you went too far in retrospect that you would dial back? And particularly, let me ask you, is it possible to require that the banks have too much capital? Well, I, in a theoretical sense, sure, you can require they have too much capital. But I think when we're talking about these very largest institutions and you see the um, stress on the system that any one of them could provide if it were failing, then you understand why in order to provide a buffer against that, the banks, those kinds of banks, will need to hold more capital than they might individually decide they want to. Now, when you get to banks that are medium-sized, smaller, and certainly community banks, I think that they have a point that the post-crisis um, regime, both supervisory and regulatory, that's been put in place, in many instances, cast the net perhaps too broadly or deeply. I've been particularly concerned with the impact on community banks. You know, the, the risk-based capital rules had to be changed to take into account what the, media, the, the, the big regionals and the largest banks were doing. But in the process, those same rules apply to community banks. And I think in this post-crisis period, we need to think more in terms of pretty sizable or, or pr pretty distinct changes and differences in the regimes applicable to, for example, community banks, as opposed to City or Goldman or State Street. So have you seen in your data that you look at actual tangible harm done to the community banks because of this? For example, in lending, is there less lending going on than should be going on? Well, you know, it's very, I, my sense has been, pouring over the data, speaking with bankers and like, my sense has been that the biggest problem remains demand for lending, you know, by small businesses and by, in some cases, consumers as well. Um, you know, if you look at the NFIB uh, index, you, National Federation of Independent Business, you'll see that a very small percentage of smaller firms say they're having a problem getting a loan when they think they need one for expansion. The problem is the demand. But, but, you know, for any small bank, any regulation or supervisory exam creates a cost that it cannot amortize over hundreds of billions of dollars of assets. It's amortizing it over a few billion dollars of assets. They have one or two or three or four compliance officers. So when you're pushing up those costs in a way that is probably not necessary, you are having an impact on the profitability of those banks. And let's face it, you know, small banks are subject to enough pressures, to pressures for economies of scale and the like, I don't think we want the regulatory and supervisory system to be an additional 
challenge for them given the market challenges they face. So Governor Tarullo, I think 70 to 80 percent of Dodd-Frank have been implemented. So we've seen financial firms, banks do a lot of work already. What do you anticipate will happen in terms of financial regulation? Will we see a rollback? Will banks kind of roll back all the efforts, the compliance efforts that they've already taken? And what are the risks? The well, risks I, here? I don't I, I think it's far too early to tell what the outcome of all these conversations, discussions and proposals will be. Um, I can say that my hope and expectation are that the core reforms that we've put in place for the largest institutions, the increased capital, the stress testing, liquidity requirements, risk management and the progress on the resolution regime will be, will have durability. And I think they should have durability because I think there's a broader consensus in the country that we cannot repeat what happened in 2007 and 8, that we do not want more taxpayer bailouts, and that we don't want to repeat the secular harm to the economy that was caused by the financial crisis. And that, that I think, to get back to one of your earlier questions, that's where memory is important, uh, is, is, to, is to keep that in mind. You know, I have always regarded higher capital and the fight against moral hazard as a place where conservative and liberal economic principles come together. When I, was tested, when I was still an academic and I was testifying before the Senate Banking Committee on what was then a set of Basel II capital proposals, I was followed by a quite conservative economist who agreed with what I had just said. And we found that we shared this view that you know, moral hazard is a problem for an efficient capital and market allocation system. So Dan, quickly, why are you leaving now? Well, you know, I came in, I came in hoping to be part of a group that put these kinds of reforms in place. I, I had the uh, unusual opportunity, just having literally written a book, uh, to be in a government position where I could put some of those, those ideas into practice with my colleagues. Uh, and, you know, eight years is a longish long period right. to have done this. And I think it's probably good for the like, individual and yeah. good for the institution okay. to, to move along. David Gurr and Tom Keene, Mr. Gurr, uh, Francine Lacroix in London. I'm Tom Keene in New York. Without question, our interview of the day. Eli Lake is out of Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. And what he has done is a real and tangible journalist starting at the New York Sun. is not that he did this in 2009 or that in 2013. It's year after year after year. He's done serious journalism that breaks political news and certainly breaks eggshells across all of our political landscape. He writes op-ed for Bloomberg View for David Shipley and the team over there. And the president today sent out a tweet on Eli Lake's essay, The Political Assassination of General Flynn. Eli, wonderful to have you on the show. Did the president cherry pick a single sentence out of a balanced essay? Um, yeah, well, I think he was basing this on a tweet about an appearance I did on Fox Hannity show. Um, and I would say it's, I agree that um, we shouldn't have the NSA uh, and the FBI interfere in our politics. But my column was a lot about, I mean, was somewhat critical of the president, I think, for throwing Michael Flynn under the bus. And also, it said, isn't it ironic that the national security advisor is fired ostensibly for a lie, which I have to say, I'm not sure he did lie. Um, 
when this is an administration that has had such a casual and opportunistic relationship with the truth. I mean, the president has said things that are just not true right. in you know his first week. So I found that that was my lead. Um, but at the same time, I guess I would find myself in agreement with President Trump in the sense that it's extraordinary that you would find these this many leaks and this many sources right. in the U.S. intelligence community to talk about the intercepts of communications yeah. of U.S. citizens or a U.S. official like this. Yeah. The last time I can remember it happening was in 2009 when there was a, uh, some stories about right. an intercept of a conversation with Jane Harmon, who was a well, Democratic congresswoman at the time. Your single sentence, which makes all Americans sit up, is, quote, this is what police states do. Let's be clear here. Is this an intelligence community out of control? Yes, I think this is an intelligence. I feel that this is in many ways a coup because we don't even know the basic facts of this. What did Flynn? What is Flynn resigning over? He's resigning over allegedly misleading Vice President Trump, according to the analysis of the intelligence community of his intercepted communications. But Flynn, I mean, I should say, Flynn was not allowed to see the transcripts of his of these conversations. And haven't we all, I mean, if right. you're asked to remember a conversation, if this was, I should say, if Flynn had an in-depth conversation about sanctions with the Russian ambassador, and then he lied about that, he said, no, 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 we talked about something else, right. that's a very serious deception. But my understanding is that it was an incidental part of a conversation well, that was about a lot of other things that weren't have anything to do with things. I, I want my colleague Francine Lacroix to get in here, but Eli, one more quick question before Francine yeah. uh, climbs on board. At the end of your essay, you are brutally clear that this could lead to a sequence of bad things for the administration. What are you trying to observe from the administration that the adults have entered the room? Have you seen it yet? No, not at the White House. I think General Mattis and if, if Mattis's former deputy when he was the commander of CENTCOM takes over at the National Security Council, those are very highly qualified people who know what they're doing and very good managers. So that is a good thing. But as far as how the White House is working, it's, it's outrageous. It's bizarre. Trump apparently knew about these concerns from the acting attorney general, and they involved Flynn's description of these conversations to Pence, and Pence did not know about any of this until the weekend. Um, so that right there is, is, a, is, a, is a sign of the dysfunction of the White House. And then look at what happened on Monday. We had Kellyanne Conway going out in the late afternoon saying the president has full confidence in Mike Flynn. You know, fi uh, story's over, guys. And then uh, Spicer, the, the press secretary, corrects that saying we're re evaluating the situation, and then a few hours later it breaks that he resigns. So that doesn't look good either. And then to have Kellyanne Conway, I don't mean to pick on her, come out the next day and act as if she didn't say the things that she said less than 24 hours before, well, it's uh, surreal. Right, but Eli, let's take a step back, right? So you, you believe that intelligent agencies, the NSA and the FBI, should not interfere in U.S. politics. Fine. Do you think they're interfering because they are mainly Democrats out to get President Trump? Or do you believe they feel like they're the institution that need to keep the president in checks and balances? Okay, so there's, let, me, let me sort of unpack that a second. On the, the, it's completely legitimate to investigate Trump campaign connections to Russia. And that should be a professional and serious investigation. The intelligence community is doing that. I think Congress should do that. 
Um, and we should also investigate how we can make ourselves more resilient so that we aren't attacked this way in the future and how the Russians did it. And all of that needs to be investigated and responded to and so forth. Yeah. What's not okay is to have a drips and drabs about the status of this really secret investigation that involved U.S. citizens without an opportunity for themselves to defend it in court. The way these are supposed to work is that you investigate, you take it to, uh, you, know, you prosecute, you take it to a court, and then you can amount your defense. And then on the question of monitored communications, I am not one of, I'm not Glenn Greenwald, I'm not an, an old ultra-libertarian. I think that the government should have the power to monitor communications. It's very important for stopping drug smugglers and terrorists and other kinds of things that we all want the government to do. But that is an right. extraordinary power. If that is abused and selectively disclosed to the press to go after political opponents, which is what's happening here, because Flynn is certainly a political opponent of many in the intelligence community, well, we're entering into a kind of banana republic, or is that this is, as I said, this is what police states do. And I say it's right. similar to mid-century America, when J. Edgar yeah. Hoover, the FBI director, had dirt on, in some right. cases, even the president. Yeah. Well, Eli, so, we, we got 15 seconds left. I've got to ask you yeah. the key question of the morning. Did the president DM you? You asked the president of the United States to direct <laughs> message you on Twitter today. Did he? <laughs> no, I, I wanted him to follow me so we could we could chat that way. I thought it would be an advantage <laughs> to get a Information the boldness, the, the boldness of Eli Lake. <laughs> Eli, congratulations, seriously, on a balanced essay, as Mr. Greenwald talked about. And certainly, uh, uh, thank you so much. Looking forward to your next Bloomberg View uh, commentary and op-ed as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.